So it's good that you guys are all here. I'm really glad to see you. I'm glad Jake survived the 14ers in the mountains. And it's going to be a really good day. I wanted to start out by looking at the leadership principles and skills syllabus. This is kind of what we're going to be going over this semester. And I didn't get around to sharing it last week. And I just totally forgot. So here it is. Week one, last week, we talked about the characteristics of a leader. And was that kind of overwhelming at all? Seeing all those things? I think there are 50 or 60 different characteristics there. And if it was overwhelming, that's okay, because growth is overwhelming. Just trust God. He is going to work those things into you. But at least have the vision of where we're going, of where, of where you're going, right? To see what God is doing in your life so that you're not missing out on opportunities to grow in certain different areas. Number two, this week we're going to talk about the biggest ministry principle, which is your intimacy with God. And we're going to look at scripture and one story in particular that illustrates how important this is as a leader. If you're not where you need to be with God, you should just quit leading. Does that make sense? And I don't think you need to have a perfectionist attitude. You don't need to think, I need to have a perfect walk with God before I can lead. That's not the case. The reality, though, is you can't give out of what you don't have. Does that make sense? And we need to be giving to the people that are following us out of what God is doing in our lives as well. We'll talk more about that today, but I think it is the biggest ministry principle, and we'll see that in Scripture. And Jesus, frankly, illustrated that in his walk with the Father. Week three, we're going to talk about the ministry vision, leadership vision, and what we call the funnel diagram. It'll be a brief description of the ministry process. You can get a whole semester that goes through that funnel diagram online. Week four, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts and strengths. We are actually going to do a spiritual gift survey in this classroom where you can kind of figure out how God has wired you. It will be a survey of a few, you know, maybe 100 questions or 115 questions, and you'll be able to get a good perspective on how God has made you to lead. For each of these, you'll notice that I have included suggested books. That isn't a requirement, of course. That's just something that I think might help you concerning that issue. And we'll put that same suggestion in the packet when we put all this into a packet. Aaron asked me, why did you put humility for the spiritual gifts week? And the reason is, as a leader, and as anyone, however you're gifted is not really that big a deal. I mean, it's good, and it's one way that you can uniquely contribute to the body of Christ. And in that sense, it is a big deal. I'm really glad Jake is talented and gifted with leading in worship and praise. But... The second we start to think of ourselves as really high because of the way we're gifted, we're setting ourselves up for a lot of trouble. That's why the book that we wanted to read then is Humility. And that book will probably almost bring you to tears every day. It's intense. It's awesome. You've read that, right, Stephanie? It's a great book. Week 5, Ordering Your Private World, will be phenomenal. Week 6, Motivation, Initiative, and Risk-Taking. Those are all characteristics of leadership. Week 7, personal growth and dealing with barriers and lids. Every one of us has lids that keep us from getting to the next level. They could be lids in our thinking. They could be lids in our circumstances. They could be lids in our boundaries and in different areas. We're going to talk about how to find out what those lids are and how to get rid of them so that we can grow to the next level. We're going to talk in week 8 about communicating, negotiating, conflict resolution, and confrontation. Stuff every college student loves to do. Just kidding. Most of you guys don't like confrontation. But that'll be good. We're going to go through practical principles of confrontation and communication, how to negotiate, and how to get to a result that you need to get to without losing friends in the process. 
needlessly, I should say, because we might lose friends. Hopefully not. We'll talk about some good principles. Week nine, leading groups, one-on-one, and events. We'll talk about the different dynamics of each type of leadership. Week 10, we're going to talk about teamwork and working as a team, because you can't do it alone. You're dead in the water if you try to lead alone. You need a team. Week 11, we're going to talk about the 360-degree leader, which is a very interesting perspective on leadership. Basically, wherever you're at in life, you're a leader, and you're leading the people that are following you, and depending on how you live your life and the choices you make and the actions that you take, you can be leading among your peers, right? And interestingly, you can almost, and you can literally be leading the people that are leading you. Not in a weird sense. We talked about submission to authority last week and things like that, and there's a place for that. But you can help give direction where you're at without being the leader at the top. Does that make sense? So wherever you're at, you can influence the direction of the group as a whole. You can influence your peers, and you can influence the people that are around, that are underneath you. Here's an example. Like, Jake, you're leading praise and worship this semester, and you're doing a good job. But let's say Jake said, I can only lead the people that are younger than me. Right? Well, that might be age-wise the freshman this year, right? Well, can you set an example for the freshman this year and help lead them closer to God? Absolutely. But what if you, if you said that you wouldn't be leading any of your peers? And in a lot of ways, you can be encouraging them towards the goal, helping them get to the vision. And you can be helping to lead me in different ways. Because there are a lot of gifts you have that I don't have. And Jake is going to come to me and say, Nate, I think da 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 about praise or about connect, or maybe I see something you don't see. And your input is going to help lead the whole team. Does that make sense? And so that's what the 360 leader is going to be all about. We're going to be talking about how to influence in every direction from wherever you're at, right? Okay, week 12, we're going to talk about multiplication and multiplying because that is fundamentally the core issue with leadership is multiplication. So that's kind of the syllabus, and I think you got that, Megan, right? Awesome. Okay, and that's what we'll be doing this semester. It'll be really good. You'll notice that there are some extra weeks there. We only have 12 weeks on the schedule. And we're going to leave some flexibility for whatever might come up in the meantime and whatever direction we might go. Wanted to review quickly, and you could do this with me. How many of you guys got to go through your checklist and check things off? Sweet, Dota. Okay, the one you got today, from it's just the same thing I handed out last week, except today it has references with it. I put references there so you can see some examples of where those characteristics come up in Christ's life. But also, you could look for others. Those are by no means all of them. And in fact, some of them are almost hard to discern. Does that make sense that I've included there? You might find a better one. And so think about it if you get a chance and see how Christ is really our model for leadership. There were two or three, though, that I tricked you on. They're not examples that Christ gave us. You guys know what those were? Anything on the mind? fundamental ones. One was not apologizing when you're wrong. <laughs> because he was never wrong, so he didn't have to apologize. And two is correcting your course when you're wrong. Those are two aspects of leadership that Jesus didn't have to, to do and didn't have to model for us. But he will give you the power through his Holy Spirit to do those things when you need to do them. So, okay. The acronym. What does L stand for? What's that lifestyle? Yeah. 
Lifestyle. Leading by lifestyle. What do you guys think that means, real briefly? Living for God. Character. Integrity. Integrity. What do those two things produce? Do you remember? They're going to persevere. Uh -huh. What did you say? Perseverance. What else? Christ likeness. And, and as far as leadership, what what is so important about those things? It's in the notes. Uh huh. That's a genuine. That is for sure. What's that? Leaders have integrity. And then uh, it continues talking about experience. Here it is. Leaders have godly character, which yields. No, it does yield that. If you're walking in integrity, you're going to have confidence. I can't even spell confidence, do Okay. And then also, you're going to have something else. Yeah, respect, loyalty, influence. Because when people see your integrity and see your character, that's going to be instant respect and credibility. It's almost like a sport that you might be interested in, like say rock climbing, once you guys rock climb. If I went to the rock climbing wall and I'm totally trying to talk like a rock climber, I'm not going to have any respect because I won't even know the words to say. Everybody will know he's a poser. <laughs> he shouldn't even be here, right? But if I go there and I'm rocking that rock wall, no pun intended. And I'm using the right words and have all the right gear and all that sort of stuff. My lifestyle might command the respect of the people that are there. Does that make sense? And that respect is probably going to earn some loyalty and the capacity to influence. As a snowboarder, this happened all the time. You know, I do some big flip spin trick, and all of a sudden, everybody wanted to ask me, How do you do that? How do you do this other thing? How do you do that thing? Right? It was buying instant credibility and respect from them and a capacity for influence. It'll happen in your lives as well as you walk in integrity. What does the E stand for? Example, right? Living. Living an example is going to be big. What about A? Action. B? What if the leader says, I have no idea what we're doing, or why we're doing it, or where we're going, or how it's going to happen. You're not going to follow along, right? Direction is vital. Okay, E? Second E? What's that? Expertise. Why is that important? Have you ever, have you ever thought, okay, have you ever taken a class with somebody that did not know what they were teaching? <laughs> Did you find it easy to follow that person or almost unbearable? I, I, I took Calc 2 with a lady that was a statistics professor. I won't say her name, because she's probably still a professor here. But, and the poor lady, to her credit, she's not a Calc teacher, but she could not teach in class. She would, I mean, every single day, people would say, I had a problem with question 13. The odd questions all had the answers in the back, I think it was. So she'd work it all out across the boards, and then she'd say, so this is the answer. And they'd say, actually, no, that has a different answer. 
that the back didn't have how to work the wrong, you know, just a self-check answer. Oh, I see where I was wrong. It was right there, she erased. Rework it. Okay, that's it. Nope, that's wrong. And we'd spend most of our class periods with her stumbling time after time after time after time, not even able to get the problem right that she assigned us for homework. And it was almost unbearable. And I couldn't believe I was actually being graded by this woman because she couldn't do the work herself. Um, that's where the expertise issue comes in. You don't have to be perfect to be a leader, and you don't have to know everything. And in fact, you shouldn't let that stop you from leading. If God's called you to lead, you need to take that step by faith, trusting him. But what I want to encourage you to do is develop that expertise. Try to grow where you're weak. If you have no idea how to answer questions about apologetics, apologetics meaning how to defend your faith, pick up a book. I'll give you one. I will buy it for you. And maybe learn some good answers. So when those topics come up, you'll have some good answers. Or so, let's say in your Bible study, somebody says, what about evolution? Isn't that true? Well, you could say, actually, it's not. I have some good answers. Here they are. And so I think you have evidence for God. You said that you've been liking that a lot. And there are a lot of other good resources that you could get your hands on that would help you grow. But it could be in another area as well, okay? So grow in those areas um, that are going to help you be a better leader. What does R stand for? Relationships. Why is that important? Relationships important in leadership. And the dots. Oh, thank you. Sure. Like God is all about love, and that's kind of the purpose. And so, relationships just are just a way to like show people how God loves. And so, by us loving Him, or us loving them, they will show how God loves us. Yeah. And yeah. your respect thing, too. Mm -hmm. If you're more than just a teacher, if you're like a friend and you're an authority figure, there'll be more time. Mm -hmm. So I think that relationships are fundamental leadership. Because in leadership, you're always asking people to take a step that they're probably not going to take on their own. Does that make sense? You're saying, let's do this together. Come on. Come on. I, I trust you. I know you can do this. I know you can take this step. And they're going, I'm not sure I can take this step. Right? And you're helping them take that step. We used to have a student here. And every time she would go sharing her faith with us, she'd be so scared. She'd go in the restroom and puke week after week after week. She'd go in the restroom in the union building, puke, and then come out and say, okay, I'm ready to share. She would be so nervous about sharing that, that she would be puking before she went sharing. And this wasn't once or twice. This was every single week. We were encouraging her to take a step she was scared to take. But you know what? By the time she graduated, she was debating the atheists on our campus in front of over 100 people. She was taking huge stands. And as a bio major, she was debating evolution and creation in front of a classroom of atheists or 100 plus atheists. She grew to that point of being able to take those steps. But part of leadership is helping people take those steps. And if you have no relational leverage with them, it's going to be real hard to get them to take that step. Right? If I just walk out to some random Joe out there and say, hey, Here's a KGB. Why don't you go share your faith? And we don't. What are you talking about? I don't even. I don't even know what you're talking about, right? So relationships are kind of foundational in leadership, and they're going to help you lead effectively. 
I want to make a note there. With evangelism, with leadership, with discipleship, you don't have to be best friends first. Okay? You can take the initiative to lead, but keep a mind or keep keep your mindset on building that relationship with every chance that you can get over time. Okay, what does that stand for? Sun Tzu and the Art of War that said that if a command is ambiguous, it is the leader's fault. <laughs> Alright? We need to be able to speak well, we're going to well, and clearly and authoritatively based on scripture. H? What's that? Habits. Habits. I? The leader isn't the one that is having to be cool to get him to do anything. The leader is the one that's saying, I'm going to go for it. She's taking the initiative, and people are following. Okay, P? Propagates. Right? If we're not multiplying, it's pointless to even be doing whatever we're doing. Because especially in our faith, multiplication is the key. Christ told us to go and make disciples of all nations, right? And if you guys have seen the the stats, right? You guys have seen the multiplication. If just two of us started this year making one disciple a year and helping that person make one disciple a year, and even a second rabbit trail, so this is a rabbit trail off the first rabbit trail, I want to encourage you that when we do discipleship, when we make disciples, they're Christ's disciples. Sometimes in a semantic, some people will say, it's my disciple. And I don't think they're saying it in a cocky way, but it comes across that way, you know? And we're not discipling people to be Ashley's disciples, right? We're discipling people to be Jesus' disciples, just like we're his disciples. So as you're doing that, though, if you started doing that one year and helping that person learn how to do one year, and then that person did it and you did it the next year, and then all four of you did it the next year, you know in 32 years after starting with two people, the entire world would be one disciple to Christ. 32 short years, within our lifetime. We could see the entire world going to Christ. But somehow, in Christianity, we don't follow the vision that God laid down, right? When Jesus left this earth, he gave us a clear vision. And somehow, we distract that with, let's do a big meeting and start the megachurch, <laughs> instead of doing the small process. And you don't get a whole lot of glory from multiplication, right? Because today, there are a lot of people that Russ has discipled that aren't anywhere around here. But they're all over this country making other disciples. In fact, you know Tony Dungy, the Super Bowl winning coach of the Colts? Amazing guy. He, you guys know he's a Christian. He's doing all these different Christian things all the time. Super famous. He apparently was discipled by somebody that Russ discipled way back when he was in ministry. Thank God Russ invested in that guy. Russ isn't getting any of the glory for it, though. And that's kind of the way God designed it. Right? I think that's partly why he gave us multiplication. We can't steal his glory. <laughs> right? Multiplication continues until he returns, and you might never even know about it until you get to heaven. Another interesting story is the guy that started Promise Keepers, McCartney, he was led to Christ and discipled by a guy that was discipled by a guy that was discipled and led to Christ by Russ. I think he's Tony Dungy, if I'm not mistaken, is three generations away, and McCartney's four generations away. Those are two huge movers and shakers for Christ in our society right now. Both of whom were a direct result of Russ just going through the packet and the stuff in the cafeteria. Right? And as you guys do that, you're going to have stories just like that. 
If I'm not mistaken, the guy that is in charge of the Jesus Film Project worldwide right now is another guy that was discipled by somebody that was discipled. The Jesus Film has exposed something like one billion people to Christ. Okay, now this guy didn't come up with it, and he's not the first guy that started that project. He's just the current leader in that. But it gives you a picture of what happens when we do the process, right? And so, leaders propagate. They multiply. They do the process that Jesus gave us, and that's where real growth is envisioned, or where real growth happens. Okay, so we're going to switch gears. We have about half an hour. We're going to switch gears and talk about the number one leadership principle. And I think if you get this, and if I get this, I am not by any means saying to you guys today, I am perfect. Okay? Uh, this is an issue that I beg God to make me better at every single day. I mean, if there's any one thing that I ask God for more and more and more is, God, give me a greater heart for you. I just, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I think I, I don't love God the way I want to love God. You know, I don't feel my need the way I, I want to feel my need for and a lot of times, I can get caught up in the do, 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 do mentality rather than putting the effort and the time into my walk with God and my relationship with Him. And we should say, just to keep our terminology right from the start, into my fellowship with Him. Because your relationship is secure at the point of salvation. You're His child. He's your Father. That's not going to change. Your fellowship, though, with God changes every day. It goes up and down based on who knows what, Right? I sin, all of a sudden I don't want to go to God, my fellowship is hindered. Confess that sin, go get in the Word, that fellowship is restored and closened and improved. You can look into that more in the discipleship packet. But we're going to talk about our fellowship with God today being the number one principle of leadership. Ephesians 3, 7 through 8, we'll be reading a few different passages today, and I might ask you to read, so be ready. Ephesians 3, 7 through 8 says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power, although I am less than the least of all God's people. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Okay, this is something that I think we need to start by getting. You are not God's gift to this world. Okay? We each need to realize that. I don't bring anything to the table. I don't come to ministry saying, God, you are lucky to have me. Right? I might be good, I'm not that good, <laughs> and I'm probably not good. Does that make sense? I don't come offering anything. I come empty saying, God, if you would use me, that would be the greatest joy a human being could have. And that's the perspective that Paul talks about here. He says that ministry is God's grace to him. Does that make sense? God's grace, grace means God's undeserved favor. And people will correct you if you say undeserved favor. I'll have different friends correct me whenever I use that description, because that's the definition in the Greek, and they'll say, actually, it's deserved. And the reason they would say that is because you're God's child. And as his child, now it is deserved, whereas before you were his child, it was not deserved. But in reality, <laughs> as a human being, I do not deserve his, his goodness, his kindness, his gifts, and his grace to me. As his child, he's chosen to give me those. Ministry is a gift. Sometimes ministry is hard. It's difficult. You don't have your expectations met. Sometimes you will invest your life in somebody for years, and they will turn their back on you and smack you in the face. I've had people that I've discipled for years almost fist fight me. Okay? And I, I love that person. He's awesome, and, um, and he's growing with God. That was just a weird day. 
But what I will tell you is, in, and we've had people that I personally, somebody that I disciple did more damage to this ministry than anybody in the last decade. And somebody that I invested two years in their life. Not just talking every week, but praying for this person daily. And it happened to Paul. And it happened to Jesus. What I'm saying is sometimes you're going to have the tendency to think ministry is not fun. It's too hard. I don't get any respect. I don't get anybody's praise. People don't recognize what I have to offer. I want to be the one that people realize is doing a good job. And I think I need to come back every time I have those thoughts and realize this is a gift that God gives me that I could be serving him. It's a gift that you get to praise every week. It's a gift that I get to do this class with you guys. It's a gift that we get to do discipleship with students that want to grow in their faith. It's a gift that you get to do a Bible study, even, Brandon, when six weeks in, still nobody has showed up, right? It's still a gift. It's still God's grace to you. And I think when I can get that perspective, my heart starts to change. Remember John the Baptist's attitude. This is mentioned, and you have the references here, Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, John 1, and Acts 13. All tell us, I think it's the only story out of any of the Gospels that's mentioned in all four Gospels and Acts. Right? It's the only thing that is across the board in all of it. And it's when John the Baptist has such a phenomenal attitude about Christ asking him to baptize him that he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Do you remember this? Okay. So John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the greatest person who has ever lived on this earth. <laughs> that's a pretty big endorsement from a pretty big figure, right? That guy, who would probably be getting more praise than Billy Graham or Rick Warren or anyone today, he says, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals, Jesus. You know? And sometimes I feel like, I'm worthy. Why am I, why am I not having a bigger Bible study? You know? I need to have his attitude, John the Baptist's attitude. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Yet he's called me to be a part of ministry. He's called me to serve him. And to serve alongside him. We'll read that in just a few minutes. Remember the apostles in Acts chapter 5, verse 41? They rejoiced that they'd been counted worthy to face persecution. So not only were they rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy to serve God, but even that they'd been counted worthy to face persecution. Can you imagine if, some, if you were in prison and beaten and flogged and threatened with death, and you were able to say, praise God for this gift, right? It's kind of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 as well. The point that I think we need to get is 1 Corinthians 3.9, and you should have it on your notes. That's where Christ has made us a co-laborer with him. That's a gift. We get to work alongside Christ. Think of the word co-worker. If you say my co-worker, that almost sounds lowly, right? It's just somebody I work with. Not in a lowly sense, but in a very amazing sense, the God of the universe made you his co-worker. You get to be his co-laborer working alongside him in ministry. When you're doing those discipleship appointments, you're not changing that person. Discipleship isn't making that person who God wants them to be. I wish it was that easy. The Holy Spirit has to do that job. I can't. So discipleship is going off subject a little bit here. And I say this carefully. I always tell people, the Holy Spirit has one big problem just to get their attention. Because he's perfect and he doesn't really have any problems and he chose it this way, but he's invisible and inaudible, okay? You can't see him, you can't touch him, you can't walk up to him and feel him. 
You don't walk around just hearing them audibly all day long, okay? But he's chosen to use you to be that physical, audible person that he will use to influence another human being. Does that make sense? So you're not the one changing somebody in discipleship. He's changing that person. But they can ignore God, but they can't ignore Megan, okay? So somebody could say, whatever, God. I'm not reading my Bible today. I'm not listening to that conviction that you're that you're convicting me with right now. But then Megan comes up. How's it going? They can't ignore you. Okay. So you're that physical person that they can't ignore. He's made you that co-worker with him. You're both doing it together, right? And no matter what aspect of ministry you ever find yourself in, you're co-laboring with Christ. That's what prayer is all about. That's why when we pray according to his will, he does it. You're co-laboring with him in prayer. Support raising, you're co-laboring with God and providing for your needs. Okay, Evangelism, you're co-laboring with him and sharing the good news with a world that desperately needs to hear it. This is ministry across the board, and it's something that I have to be joyful about. This is an opportunity. This is a joy to be able to lead and to be able to serve him in doing what's close to his heart. That's the next point. John 15, 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I command. John 14, 15, and 15, 14, you can remember it. They both pretty much say the same things. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll do what I command. And 15, 14 says, if you're his friends, you'll do what he commands. Okay? So both those verses tell us the same thing, that when you're doing what he commands, you're doing what's close to his heart. And that develops a lot of intimacy with him. You can think of this... If you've ever been on a date and you do something that you both enjoy together, you develop intimacy. Or if you do something that your significant other likes, that person is going to see that as very valuable. Is Jack taking you off on me? A lot, huh? <laughs> Jack, how do you feel when a man comes rock climbing with you? It's awesome. It's mind-boggling. You love it, right? Okay, when you do something that's close to Jack's heart, it develops intimacy with Jack. It's the same thing with God. When I serve God, I'm doing what's close to his heart, and it will develop a level of intimacy with God that you will never see unless you're serving God and doing what's close to his heart. That involves scary things like evangelism. You know, some people say, that's not my gift, I'm not going to do it. And they miss out on an entire lifetime of seeing God in a way that you only get to see in those situations, right? And they miss out on the intimacy that we have with him in those situations. In Philippians 3, verses 7 through 9, Paul said that nothing compares with that intimacy with God, with what God does in our lives. Nothing. Not even ministry. Does that make sense? Nothing compares with that. And that is why that intimacy with God, that fellowship with Him, is the biggest ministry priority. Now, this is a big, big verse, so you could turn there with me to Mark 6, 30 through 31, if you like. Did I include that in your notes, actually? Okay, just read it in your notes with me. Mark 6, 30-31. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Okay, so imagine, Connect just gets over, and Jesus walks up. And Jake is running up talking about praise. And Alex, you're running up talking about how you just got to do your testimony and share with all these people. And Stephanie is too. And imagine we're all talking to Jesus about, Oh, it was so awesome, you know, we did all this great stuff for you. And then, they're also really tired and worn out. Have you ever felt that way in ministry? Remember I get there last week? You hadn't eaten, Jake, right? Jake had not eaten dinner. He's putting sound system stuff together. He's getting ready to go. You're just like the disciples. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, 
right? So they're serving, they're doing ministry, they're going for it. They don't even have time to eat. Jesus comes up, they're telling them what's happening, it's exciting. And what does Jesus say? He says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Right? He's saying, come with me. You need to be connecting with me. I'm glad that you're doing all that. <laughs> okay, I'm glad but you need to be connecting with me. He's telling his disciples the most important thing, the most important thing, the greatest ministry activity that you can do is to be spending time with Christ. You should highlight that, you should write that, you should memorize that. The best ministry thing I can do, the number one leadership principle that I can apply is my daily time with Christ. Ravi Zacharias said, if you fail in your daily time with Christ, you'll fail everywhere else as well. And as leaders, we've got to get to this point. A lot of you are talented and likable, and you might lead effectively, even in a Christian setting, just because of your personality. Oftentimes we see what we call personality-driven ministries, okay? That's not good. We need to be leading out of our fellowship with Christ. Remember Elijah in 1 Kings 18? He performs arguably the greatest miracle in the entire Bible, other than maybe the resurrection or the parting of the Red Sea. He calls fire down from heaven on this water-saturated sacrifice to the amazement of all these skeptics, right? And then on top of that, he slaughters all these prophets of Baal and just kills them all. You'd think this is a victory for God in Israel. How could Elijah ever be scared again? Right? The next day, he gets so terrified of Jezebel, this queen in Israel, because she says, I'm going to kill you. What would you say if, let's say, Michelle Obama, okay, she's kind of like the queen of America, um, the president's wife. Let's say you just saw God call fire down from heaven and destroy everyone that had ever opposed him. Not in a literal sense, because we live in a different covenant now, <laughs> okay? Let's say he imprisoned all the atheists or something like that. Or they all got saved. Let's put it that way. That's the best way. Every atheist in the country became a devout believer, firmly focused on Christ. And the next day, Michelle Obama says, What? Are you kidding me? I'm going to put you in jail, Brandon. What would you say? <laughs> Woe is me. Elijah, the next day, he's like, God, just kill me. Just kill me. Okay? He's crying. He's terrified. He is wimping out. And an angel comes to him and gives him a, a cake of some bread and some water and says, Eat and drink. He eats it and he drinks it. It refreshes him to the point where he is able to run 40 days and 40 nights straight. Okay? <laughs> have you ever read? Have you ever run for 40 minutes? Okay? <laughs> it's hardcore. 40 days and 40 nights with the energy that he received from that cupcake and water. <laughs> okay? Cupcakes are on my mind because Eliana's birthday was yesterday. We have princess cupcakes. It's pretty sweet. But anyway, can you, can you believe what, what is happening here? Remember what Jesus says in John 6.35? He says, if you come to him, you'll never be hungry or thirsty again. Right? You're going to have living water and the bread that comes down from heaven. That analogy that we saw with Elijah is more real for you and your ministry than it ever was for Elijah. When you feel wasted, like his disciples did there, where they needed to come away with him and get some rest, they also needed to be nourished by Jesus himself. That bread and that water that could, that could sustain Elijah for 40 straight days and nights of running, he's available to you too when you need to connect with him. Does that make sense? 
you're not going to do it until you're connecting with him and allowing him to nourish you with himself for ministry. Deuteronomy 10.9 says, That is why the Levites have no share or inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as the Lord your God told them. This is phenomenal, guys. All the tribes of Israel got land. Okay, I'm going to hear, guys. Sorry. I need to talk to myself. There's no way I could just believe that one last week. Okay. So, that is why the Levites have no share or inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as the Lord your God told them. Deuteronomy 10 9. All the different tribes of Israel got an inheritance from God, right? Of land, of possessions, things that even today we would consider valuable houses, cars, property, things like that. And the Levites didn't. Do you remember who the Levites were? They're the priests. They're the ones serving God. They're the ones doing ministry. They're the leaders, like we talked about, that are leading people closer to God, like everybody in this room, okay? And what does God say about them? They're not getting all the inheritance that the other people are getting. They're getting me, right? So everybody else, even your brothers and sisters in Christ, might get more things than you. But when you're choosing to lead, you get something nobody else gets. And that's a life of seeing God work in and through you in amazing ways. Of developing an intimacy with him that only comes by working as co-laborers right alongside each other. Does that make sense? And I think to see God as our inheritance. Stephanie, you're on full-time staff. I'm on full-time staff. We've given up things that we could have in this life. I know the person that took my job seven years ago when I came on full-time staff is making six figures right now, okay? And I know I'd be making at least that, if not more. But And I'm not making near that right now, I can guarantee you that. But you know what? That's okay. That's okay. Because my inheritance is the Lord. And for a lot of you, that's going to be the case even in class. Your GPA is not your inheritance, right? The Lord is your inheritance. I'm not saying be bad in school. Okay? Be good in school. Your, your finances are not your inheritance. The Lord is your inheritance. In Jeremiah 30, 21, God says, Who is he who will devote himself to be close to me? And that's a question to all of us in ministry. Am I going to be devoted to being close to him? Is that going to be my number one core conviction as a leader, to be close to God? That was the way David saw it, running a country. In Psalm 119.10, Stephanie's favorite chapter, David says, I seek you with all my heart. I can't say that with a clear conscience. I can't say I seek you with all my heart. I might be able to say I seek you with 50% God, <laughs> right? Could you imagine being able to say with a clear conscience, I seek you with all my heart, God? That's where David was at. He failed big time. But he had something straight that all of us need to get straight. That he is my number one ministry priority. He is my number one leadership responsibility. To seek him with all my heart first is the number one thing I can be doing. 
as I lead. That was the number one thing David could be doing as he led the entire nation of Israel. And it should be the number one thing that I do as well. Isaiah 40, 31, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. As I seek Him, as I devote myself to being close to Him, He is going to give me the energy to do the ministry that He's called me to in the first place. Now let's look at this passage in Luke 10. We should all turn there because this is big. Luke 10, 38 through 42. And then we're going to close with Moses' example and we'll be done. Luke 10, 38 through 42 convicts me more than almost any passage in Scripture. Every time I read it, I feel like I just got hit by a truck. (laughs) All right? All right. You guys all there? Sweet. You guys got there faster in your real buckles than I did with my As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was just was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So, these things that had to be done, what does it say about them? You guys see that? In verse 40, Martha was distracted by all the preparations that what had to be made. These were important things. She wasn't just doing. She was doing things that had to be done. They were important things, and she felt overwhelmed with the workload. She was telling Jesus, tell my sister to help me. Have you ever ever felt like that in ministry? I feel like that every Tuesday. (laughs) I feel like that every Monday afternoon before this class. I feel like that every Friday before retreats. Oh my gosh. Fridays before retreats have, at times, been the least Christ-like afternoons of my life. And then everything goes wrong, of course. Right? Because so many things need to get done. And what Jesus is saying is, enough. Remember, be still and know that I'm Enough. I'm the important thing. Jesus says, out of all those things that need to be done, he goes, there's only one that really needs to be done. And that's what Mary is doing, Martha. She's spending time with me. That's the one thing that needs to be done. Not all the other preparations. I mean, we need to be diligent as leaders. We need to do what we need to do. But the one thing that matters is our fellowship with Jesus himself. And everything else has to come out of that. And if that's not where it needs to be, I'm not ready to be leading. And I shouldn't be. Now, we're going to close with this picture that Moses illustrated of leading effectively. You remember in Exodus 19, Moses leaves around 2 million people. We don't know the exact number. It's a lot. Do you know how many people that is? Jake, you're from up. From Colorado Springs. Yeah, Denver has two million. Who's from Denver? Amanda. Okay, sweet. So imagine the entire city of Denver walking around in a desert without food, without water, without shelter, or at least minimal amounts of each of those. 
and you're the leader, okay? You're the leader. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? Moses bails on these guys to go spend time with God. He might have gotten so stressed out. He's like, no, seriously, God calls him right to this mountain. And God gives him the Ten Commandments. This is in Exodus 19. You can read it. And Moses spends this great time with God, right? And he comes down. What are the people doing at the end of his time with God on the mountain? Do you remember? They've lost it. <laughs> They've gone from worshiping the God of the universe to worship, worshiping golden calves, right? They've absolutely lost it. They're going nuts. Scripture even says that they became the laughing stock of everybody in the area. So all the other people in the area, they couldn't believe how ridiculous this nation had become, or this tra these traveling nomads had become. Okay, what would probably be the first thing that would come to your mind if you were the leader of that group? What would you not do again? <laughs> I'm not leaving them again. <laughs> Look what happened when I left. Everything went out the window. Okay, well, what does Moses do in Exodus 32? This is so cool. What does he do in Exodus 32? You can read about in verse 31, then more in 34, 28 through 30. He leaves again to go spend more time with God and spends 40 days with God, right? He doesn't just, well, I mean... He destroyed the Ten Commandments when he was down and, and then had uh, one tribe destroy all these other tribes. I don't remember how many people they killed, something like 25,000 in a day or something ridiculous like that, you know? And that was actually at God's command, so Moses wasn't doing the wrong thing there. But then Moses grinds up the gold cap and makes them all drink it in their water. That wasn't God's command, so you could tell he was just angry. He's just being a jerk, you know? He's a leader, he's mad. But then, after he kind of calms down, he leaves for another 40 days with God. He realized that the number one ministry priority I have is me and God. And he obeyed God's calling back to that time with him. God gave him again the Ten Commandments. He returns from those 40 days radiant. Can you imagine your entire nation just lost it, became a laughing stock of the world? You spend time with God and you're beaming and radiant as a result, right? I think that's where we can get no matter how bad ministry goes or how good it goes, out of your walk with him, you'll be radiant just because of your fellowship with him, because you're taking the time that you need to take with him. He has to be your first ministry commitment. 19th century missionary Henry Martin said, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Christ, the more missionary we become. <laughs> right? As I simply grow, grow closer to him and fellowship more with him, he is going to produce his fruit through me. He's going to do the work through me because it's him, not me, right? And in my utmost for his highest, Oswald Chambers writes this, and you can follow with me. He says, Beware of any work for God which enables you to evade concentration on him. Did you get that? Beware of any work for God which enables you to evade concentration on him. A great many Christian workers worship their work. We can all get there. The one concern of a worker should be concentration on God, and this will mean that all other margins of life, mental, moral, and spiritual, are free with the freedom of a child, a worshiping child, not a wayward child. A worker without this solemn, dominant note of concentration on God is apt to get his work on his neck. There is no margin of body, mind, or spirit free. 
Consequently, he becomes spent out and crushed. That's where we will get if our fellowship with God is not where it needs to be. There is no freedom, no delight in life. Nerves, mind, and heart are so crushingly burdened that God's blessing cannot rest. But the other side is just as true. When once the concentration is on God, all the margins of life are free and under the dominance of God alone. There is no responsibility on you for the work. The only responsibility you have is to keep in living with constant is to keep in living constant touch with God. And to see that you are and to see that you allow nothing to hinder your cooperation with him. The freer after sanctification the freedom after sanctification is the freedom of a child. The things that used to keep life pinned down are gone. But be careful to remember that you are freed for one thing only, to be absolutely devoted to your co-worker. We have no right to judge where we should be put, or to have preconceived notions as to what God is fitting us for. God engineers everything. Wherever he puts us, our one great need is to pour out a wholehearted devotion to him in that particular work. Whatsoever that hand finds to do, do it with all that money. Isn't that good? Again, beware of any work of God which enables you to evade concentration on him. The number one ministry priority we have, the number one leadership priority you have is your fellowship with God. That's everything. And that's what it says in Psalm 127. Remember this? It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those that labor, labor in vain. See, he's got to be the one doing the work. The work that we need to do isn't going to get done just because we strive hard but it's going to get done because out of our fellowship with him, we're allowing him to do it in us and through us and with us, right alongside us. So I would encourage you that the number one ministry responsibility you have is your own fellowship with God. I hope that, that would encourage you. And that was Jesus' example. You can check it out in the notes. We go through the leadership acronym. But Jesus daily spent time with the Father. Scripture says before it was light out, he was going in the dark to go spend time. That was his number one leadership priority, and it should be mine as well. Okay, let's close and and call it a day. Let's pray. Yeah, want to close this out? Cool. Father, I would just thank you first, really, God. We thank you that we're able to come together and meet and um, learn more about you, God. And I pray that um, what we learned here today, God, would um, affect us this week, God, that we would put it into action, Lord God, and then we go from here. With you as a priority, God, that spending time with you would be our only desire. But, um, God, I pray for us this week that we can uh, also keep that in mind as we go through our week, God. We thank you and praise you for just being able to learn about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.